Hello Watch Enthusiasts and welcome to Watch Chronicler Unscripted, the podcast available for SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes and of course any other podcast player of your choice in addition to YouTube. In today's episode I'd like to speak about what watch reviews simply can't tell you. Now contrary to what is generally spoken about, watch reviews can never be totally objective. It simply isn't possible. After all watches are a luxury and there are always going to be inclinations, even if they're not paid for, which affect the objectivity of a review whether it's ownership of another watch from the brand, friendship with someone at the brand, or simply a liking or disliking for the general image of a timepiece. These all make a difference. Ultimately, a good watch review has to involve storytelling to some extent to explain the full background of a timepiece, because frankly anyone can find the specifications themselves. It's the reviewer's job to explain a bit more depth and really give a feel for a watch, even if the person who's watching the video or reading the article has no ability to be able to experience the timepiece before buying. But there are plenty of things you also simply can't test in a review. Now for the most part, a review of a watch can't take place for an extended period of time, and I don't mean a couple of weeks, I mean a couple of years, because it takes that sort of time frame to start to notice the quirks and irritations inherent to a watch design. To be quite honest, I don't think producing a watch which will last a couple of weeks on the wrist of a reviewer is that much of a challenge, although heaven knows there are plenty of brands which fail to do even that. Today I'd like to speak about elements which make life difficult for the owner of a watch and which should be taken into account when buying a watch because personally I like to incline towards being safe rather than risking a bad experience with a brand if there's some danger of it taking place with a watch I'm going to own, particularly if a lot of money is to be invested. And these are elements like customer service, the quality of the watch itself, not necessarily the features but the execution of the watch, and in addition to that, I'd like to talk about the network, because having access to professionals who know the brand and deal with the brand on a regular basis can be invaluable if, and indeed when, if you own a watch for a very long period of time, something eventually goes wrong. Along the way, I'd also like to share a few anecdotes of some of the truly hellish experiences I've had with some of the watches I've owned, and some of the less hellish, which I haven't shared until now, but I think which may be of interest and may lend some perspective on some brands which you might not have expected. Of course, if you enjoy this podcast, do remember to head over to watchchronicler.com where you can find all of these podcasts in addition to full articles, reviews, and some interviews. Remember also to follow us on Instagram to always know about the latest videos, podcasts, articles, and all the rest of the content coming from Watch Chronicler about the watches you love, but with a somewhat different approach and perspective. So what's the first problem which I'd like to address in today's podcast? Well, I'd like to address customer service. You see, a watch is always going to go wrong in the long run. Of course, if you own a watch for only a few months or a few years, you may be lucky. But the reality is that something will eventually go wrong with a watch like any other mechanical device, and it really pays dividends to have a brand which is prepared to support you and help you resolve whatever problem comes up. Of course, some may present the argument that for a very cheap watch, in the grand scheme of things, that is, let's say under £100, you shouldn't really expect wonderful customer service. And I can see why you shouldn't expect it, but I think that it's a weak argument from the perspective that there's a level of irritation to your watch breaking, as well as the simple inconvenience. Of course it's uneconomical to have a very affordable watch serviced, because more often than not it will be cheaper to simply replace the movement, but the reality is that if you have, let's say, a £2,500 Tudor Black Bay, and you have it serviced for, let's say, £500, that's still a very big chunk out of the value, that's the original value, let's not forget, not even the depreciated value, which you're losing every time you have it serviced, so in reality it's pretty uneconomical to service any reasonably priced watch, so I don't think it's any excuse that you buy an affordable watch that you shouldn't expect any kind of service. 
But of course, there are some brands which are known for throwing up difficulties when having a watch serviced or help with regards to problems with the product. And the name Rolex often comes up. And Rolex is generally regarded, I get the sense, as a pretty arrogant brand in terms of their customer service. And I think to an extent they get a lot more flack than they deserve because the authorised dealer network is to a great extent the corrupt element. But it is true that when you want to have an, an older Rolex serviced, retaining all the old components can be a real fight. Whereas with Omega, for instance, it's a much, much easier process. Now, sure, there are some brands where, to be quite honest, you don't really expect there to be much customer service, or with a sense of realism, you don't expect there to be much customer service. A good example would be my Alpha Daytona, which I bought a few years ago now, I think at the very end of 2015, and, and I love that watch in terms of being a very interesting remake of a vintage Rolex, but the reality was that it was shockingly badly made, it was poorly machined, the movement didn't reset properly, it tended to jump beyond the zero when you reset it and so jumped to the first minute on the minute counter as soon as you started the chronograph. There was also a problem with the crown thread disappearing after just a couple of months and so the crown being left poking out because it wouldn't screw in and all these various problems and at no point was I able to get any kind of help with the watch either from the dealer I bought it from because they promptly vanished but also from Alpha themselves. So the reality there was that I shouldn't have perhaps expected that much from a hundred pound or so watch. But then there are far more illustrious brands which recently have kicked up a stink, you could say, with regards to the customer service and support they should be offering their clients. Patek Philippe is a very good example. In the past, they've offered extracts from their archives to authenticate and show the original condition of a watch when first sold for 150 francs, and there was a fair waiting time for the document to come through, but nothing out of the ordinary, certainly in the watch world. But nowadays, and only recently, in fact, they've changed this, to only allowing you to get an extract every five years for a higher price of 500 francs and only for pre-1989 watches. Now this may seem somewhat irrelevant, but the reality is this is a quite problematic change because let's say you buy a used Petit Philippe. Now if it's a more recent model and you don't get the documents with it, then you have no way beyond calling in a professional of checking that it's an original watch. There's no way to approach Petit Philippe to find out if the dial has been changed or if anything has been altered from the original piece. There is also the element that if someone does want to con another person by changing the dial or the hands to a more valuable, more sought-after format, then all they have to do is request an extract from the archives just before they sell the watch and destroy it, because they know that it will be impossible to find another one or source another one, you could say, before they've been able to vanish post-sale. So the reality is that this change may impact the market quite considerably. And it's this kind of customer service which really can leave you pulling your hair out. But where should we go next after poor customer service? Well, I think it's worth considering the network a brand has in any given country. This is something which is very rarely considered by reviewers and also very rarely considered by buyers, it has to be said. There are lots of enthusiast brands like Orient, for example, which aren't on paper sold in the UK and which have no service centres in the UK either. And I'll come back to that in a minute. The problem with this is that if you have a problem with your watch, either you've bought it on the grey market and had it imported, in which case you're essentially on your own with a lot of brands. A lot of brands won't touch a watch under those circumstances. And you also have the problem of servicing. If you want to send the watch to be serviced, it's no longer a case of simply sending the watch to another part of the country for a reasonably low price and with a fairly high level of security. Instead, you have to spend an awful lot of money sending the watch abroad to be serviced, and there can also be taxation problems and all sorts of headaches which come up along the way. 
The difference is, of course, that if there is a service centre in the country and they have to send the watch abroad back to its country of manufacture, then they will be able to deal with that and arrange it properly and without any kinds of headaches for you. Notably, if you have to send a watch abroad, particularly, for instance, to Japan, then this can turn a simple warranty repair problem into a very expensive and difficult matter to resolve. I found this with my Orient Ray, which I bought in late 2015, and which was a watch I really enjoyed wearing as an affordable Seiko SKX alternative. But the problem with that watch was that it was really a string of problems for me. The bezel first went wrong with a click spring which failed, which I then had to bodge, let's say, myself, because a Seiko SKX click spring, which was the closest thing available in the UK, no one seemed to be able to get hold of Orient parts, wouldn't fit, and so I had to, uh, to adapt the existing bezel click to fit, and then the movement gave out and it couldn't be serviced in the UK, and I couldn't find anyone to service it in my area, and ultimately it simply wasn't economical to deal with it being sent to Japan. But in an interesting way, both of the problems I've spoken about actually abut one very major problem and probably the most immediate issue to resolve if you own a watch and something goes wrong, which is servicing and long-term reliability. You see, the construction of a watch is a complicated matter. There are plenty of very affordable watches which are fantastically well-built because they're designed properly for their price range, and plenty of very expensive watches from very illustrious brands which don't work. For a while, for example, Bulgari movements in their ultra-thin watches just weren't up to scratch and weren't able to work in the same way as, for example, Piaget movements, which have run for many decades and which have evolved over many decades to be reliable and fantastically thin. I don't believe that's a problem anymore, but it's certainly one of those things which wasn't reported in any way and with very high failure rates of movements for an extremely expensive watch, you do have to wonder where you can actually find security when you buy a new watch. Of course, in the world of watch journalism, complication is generally seen as a good thing. If a movement which is a simple ETA can be enhanced with new components and features, then all the better for it, or if a brand can simply drop the ETA and have an in-house movement, that's even better. But with these changes come inevitable risks, notably the fact that a lot of brands are the only people to be able to service their own watches, which poses a problem if either you can't access them or they simply stop producing parts. I remember enjoying a very pleasant lunch a few years ago with SJX, the uh, fantastic writer and editor of the, uh, the online blog, which is perhaps one of the best online about high horology and really serious reviews of watches. I recommend his work if you haven't read it already. But we were chatting over lunch and the subject of the Credor HE2 came up, which is a watch he happened to own at the time. I don't know if he still owns it, but I remember him expressing some concern about this watch, which I held in unbelievably high esteem, because the long-term servicing of a spring drive movement from Seiko was an uncertainty to him. Of course, one could be surprised, because of course the spring drive movement is widely praised and I praise it an awful lot too. But one has to remember that if Seiko suddenly decided they were no longer going to provide parts for older spring drive movements, that would be the end of those watches. There would be no service centre in the world that could reassemble them if you couldn't find some of the key electrical components within them. In fact, this was one of the reasons why when I bought my Grand Seiko, I opted for a non-high-beat, non-spring drive movement model, because I didn't want to have any of this hassle in future. There are also situations where, frankly, you wouldn't want to give the watch to anyone but the manufacturer, because the expertise required to service it is simply expertise which only they would have. Like, for example, with Zenith and their Defy El Primero, with its ultra-high-beat chronograph, which operates a separate balance wheel to the rest of the movement, and runs at ten times the frequency 
which gives it a fantastic sweep to the second hand and serious accuracy like nothing else on the market. But a story came up recently which was a problem faced by the editor of WatchCollectingLifestyle.com, and he's already posted a subsequent article explaining how this was resolved. But the initial problem, I think, should be highlighted, which was that the chronograph function stopped working on the watch, and that's no bad thing. It happens with a watch. Inevitably, these things can't be completely reliable. But after sending the watch to be serviced, and I understand receiving difficult replies and communications from the brand and its service centre, the watch came back with a damaged movement and some serious damage to the case, and subsequently when it was sent back to them, the watch was sent with a completely different reference to the movement, so they'd replaced the entire movement, which meant that now all of the watch's documents no longer match the watch, which obviously would have a serious impact on future resale value, and frankly would raise quite a few eyebrows, particularly the fact that the service details, or the documents explaining what had been done during the service, said nothing about a new main plate, or indeed a new movement altogether. And it's these kinds of things which, quite honestly, make the ownership of some more expensive watches a bit of a worry at times, and it's why I think that more attention should be put towards the potential annoyances and difficulties of owning a watch further down the line after the purchase experience. Now, I understand that LVMH and Zenith were able to very quickly resolve this problem with a completely replaced watch, and of course that's fantastic, but one does have to wonder what would have been done had this not happened to the editor of a watch publication. At this point, I think it's worth addressing something which is actually a problem with the watch itself and not the brand surrounding it, and this is poor quality control. Now, poor quality control is something which happens to watches at any price range. There are always going to be problems, and it's just an inevitability that occasionally something will slip through the cracks, no matter how small they are in any brand. This, I think, is very well demonstrated by Omega and Rolex, which have both sold watches with incorrect dials in the past, simply by mistake. And there's nothing actually wrong with the watch, but just a mistake has been made in terms of the arrangement of the dial, notably Rolex, for example, applying a 9 numeral where a 3 should be, and thus producing unique dial arrangements for their watches, and Omega mixing white and orange applied markers on some of their watches, which have been sold. Notably, there was a Planet Ocean which was sold a few years ago, which didn't appear in any of their catalogues because it was a mistake, but I believe the owner actually kept the dial as it was for the sake of enjoying a unique timepiece. Unfortunately, there is also the other kind of quality control, where actually the quality of the product is not up to scratch. And there are a few brands which have been known for this over the last few years, but plenty which simply haven't been addressed publicly. One which has been addressed publicly is Tudor, and Tudor has been known for a few mistakes over the last few years, and to the best of my knowledge, Tudor has resolved all of these problems extremely well, either with a whole model range which wasn't working properly, or with each individual who had bought a watch which wasn't up to scratch. Now, a notable problem with these watches is quality control where casing is concerned. Now, I have a personal story regarding this, and it fits with quite a lot which has been said by others who've had problems with finishing on brand new Tudors. Now, I bought a Tudor Heritage Ranger in, I believe, 2017, I think February 2017, and it was a watch which I've been looking at for a while, but which I originally decided to not go for in favour of the Tudor Black Bay 36, which was a fairly new watch at the time, and which I liked the look of as a sort of everyday but quite tough expression of the typical traditional Rolex and Tudor Oyster case. And unfortunately, the local authorised dealer was unable to find one on the bracelet arrangement I wanted, and so I ended up being shown the watch on the incorrect strap or bracelet, I forget which way around it was, as well as a Tudor Heritage Ranger, and it became very clear to me that the Heritage Ranger was the watch which I preferred, but I wasn't sure because it was more expensive, 
and I needed to think about it. Now, upon arriving home that day, it very quickly dawned on me that I could make sense and I could arrange my finances to be able to stretch a little bit further for the Heritage Ranger. And so I telephoned the authorised dealer and they put aside the watch for me and I paid for it over the phone. Because of Rolex and Tudor's somewhat odd arrangement with postage, the watch couldn't simply be sent to me and I lived a couple of hours away from that authorised dealer. So he actually drove the watch to me, which was, I think, very good of him. Now, I didn't happen to be at home when the uh, the watch was received. It was a family member who happened to be there. And as a result, I didn't inspect the watch whilst the authorised dealer was still there. But I'd inspected the watch in the AD and it was still wrapped in all of its original plastic wrapping. So I couldn't actually inspect the case itself. But upon unwrapping it at home, it quickly became apparent there were scratches down the side of the case, some knocks and bumps on one of the lugs, which... I don't think would have been possible through the plastic coating, so it must have happened before the watch was received by the AD, and the crystal itself had imperfections on its edge, which was very odd and I'd never seen these before. Now I was planning to wear this watch every day, so I didn't really mind the fact there were some imperfections, and the authorised dealer was extremely helpful in terms of giving me a considerable discount to apologise, let's say, for the problems with the watch in that condition. And the watch was very enjoyable to own, but I can see why someone could be extremely aggravated with seeing such problems with a brand new watch, particularly if the authorised dealer was less accommodating and the model were a more popular one, like for example the Tudor Black Bay 58, which I know has a considerable waiting list in certain areas for, and wasn't a model which was traditionally difficult to sell, like the Heritage Ranger. But the moral of this particular story is that you should never expect that quality control will be better on a more expensive watch, because that simply isn't the case. Fundamentally, I feel that the finishing on my Omega Seamaster, which when I bought it was considerably less than, for example, a Tudor Pelagos, is a much better bet in terms of finishing and quality control than any of those Tudors I've handled, which is an interesting point and something which obviously has changed now that Omega has bumped the prices up and changed the model collection. But it's still worth noting that there are discrepancies in terms of pricing and finishing and quality control, which might not be apparent immediately, and do require some reading up before making the purchase. The final part of this podcast might be the most important, and that's poor quality in the essential components of a watch. Now, this may seem almost elementary, that if you spend a lot of money on a watch, it should be constructed properly, and due design should be put into making sure that elements which maybe you don't see but which you use every day are tough and resilient enough to be able to deal with their due and their necessary functions but this isn't always the case. For the sake of argument, I will use sports watches as an example because they're meant to be tougher than dress watches and so have fewer places to hide when this point is levelled at them. And a good example is Seiko and Orient. They're known for making very tough, very well-made dive watches, and I've owned a few. I've owned a couple of Seiko dive watches, so one of their couple of hundred pound ones, as well as moving up to the previous generation SBDX 017 Marine Master, which was a fantastic watch, gorgeously made, but also one with exactly the same click spring problem as my Orient Ray, which cost a tenth as much. After about three months, the click spring in the bezel gave up, there was a loud crack, the bezel jammed, and it became very clear from a rattling that one of the springs within the bezel had sheared. And it seems almost ridiculous that a watch which has been produced with the most spectacular attention to detail in terms of shaving the case to exactly the right shape The polishing and the brushing are both exquisite. The bracelet may be a bit old-fashioned, but is very good. The bezel construction itself is superb. And there is that phenomenal top-loading construction, which allows the front of the watch to be unscrewed in order to make the watch 
more, more of a solid piece and with fewer areas for water to get in. And yet, they use a very fragile, very old-fashioned and, frankly, outdated method to make the bezel click, which seems bizarre because brands like both Rolex and Omega have moved on from that design. Another very good example would be Zinn, another brand which you really expect to produce tough, well-engineered watches. And the reality is that a lot of their watches are spectacularly well-engineered. Their Tegument technology to harden the cases is extremely useful and very clever. Their designs are unobtrusive, but have just the right mix of design and toughness to them. Though I must say, in recent years, their limited editions have become a bit desperate. And they have some of the best behind-the-scenes features, like, for example, their bezel action is some of the best I've ever felt because of a ball bearing system on vertical springs, which you have to buy an Omega, really, to be able to access in terms of pricing if you don't go for a Zin. And yet, the same brand had consistent movement quality problems over a few years. Now, I don't think this is still the case. I believe that things have improved. But when I bought my Zin, my Zin 104 with a white dial, there were considerable movement problems, and mine had to go back to Zin twice because of movement failures. Then there was the crown, which should have been a very simple thing for Zinn to produce, a simple screw-down crown for a 200-meter water-resistant watch, which wasn't even a proper dive watch. But it never screwed in properly. I mean, of course it screwed in if you were very careful and rolled the crown backwards in order to lock the thread before then screwing it in. But you had to push the crown very hard against the case. It often missed the thread and sometimes jumped off the end of the thread if you didn't hold the crown in and screw it in in just the right way. Now, that's something you simply wouldn't expect from a brand with such a reputation for prestige in the field of producing tough, technical quality watches. Of course, of all of these various things, the easiest one to pick up on is this particular general problem side of things, like, for example, the crown, because you're going to notice that if you're reviewing a watch. But the truth is that any of these problems can cause an awful lot of annoyance for a watch owner at any price range, beyond simply the monetary cost which they can incur for the owner. But what do you think of all these problems? Have you seen these sorts of issues with your own watches? And if you do have any great stories about problems you've had with watch brands, the quality of watch you simply expect to be better, or anything else which I might have spoken about in today's podcast, please let me know in the comment section below on the video version of this on YouTube. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to follow us on whichever podcast player you enjoy using to keep these podcasts coming. So thank you very much for listening and, of course, watching. This is Armon from watchchronicler.com, out.